You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Honor Bright. On Tuesday, the 9th of June, 1925, Felix Riley of Sandyford was going to collect horses from a field near to Ticknock, a townland bordering on the Dublin Mountains, south of Dundrum and between Sandyford and Rathfarnham. It was around 7am when he came to the crossroads at Ticknock and saw a woman who was lying at the side of the road. When Felix spotted her first, he thought she was sleeping, and so he passed her by. She was lying partially on the road and partially on the grass verge, with her feet pointing towards the ditch. It was unusual, but none of his business, and he'd work to be getting on with, so he continued on. But when Felix noticed that one of the woman's shoes was lying a distance away and alongside her, he decided to try and rouse her. When he got close up to the woman, Felix saw that she'd suffered a wound to her chest and he notified the civic guards. At the station in Dundrum, Superintendent Reynolds had gotten the message and went out to Ticknock, where he found the body. The woman was fully dressed, wearing a grey skirt and coat, a blouse, a black hat, shoes and stockings. Her left shoe was off, and found lying next to her body, up closer to her head. When the guard searched the body of the mysterious and unfortunate woman, he found a pair of kid gloves in her pocket, a purse with a shilling and fivepence in it, some cigarettes and handkerchiefs. One of the handkerchiefs was monogrammed with the name Honor Bright. When inquiries were made into the name Honor Bright, a number of women who lived in Dublin city centre were located who knew it. One was Nellie Tuckner, who confirmed that she knew the woman who also went by the name Lil O'Neill, In fact, they lived together in rooms at number 48 Newmarket in the Liberties area of South Dublin City. Nellie had last seen Honour the night before at 11 o'clock on the 8th of June at their shared lodgings. The civic guards brought Nellie to view the body and she identified it as Honour Bright. According to author Patricia Hughes, Honour Bright was born Mary Kate O'Neill on June 11, 1900. She was the youngest of six, with three brothers and two sisters, and came from the tiny village of Greignespidoke in County Carlow. Her mother was called Kate, and one of the older girls was Mary, and so everyone knew Mary Kate as Lily. Her father Michael was a mason, and he died in 1903. Five years later, Kate died too. The eldest son in the family emigrated to America, and then the second eldest became the head of the household, and had his orphaned siblings in his charge. Most of the O'Neills would follow the eldest Patrick's suit and emigrate to America, where there were more opportunities for work. In 1918, Lily moved to Dublin and took up a job as a clerk in a shop. She also worked sometimes as a dancer at an evening club. 
1920, Lily became pregnant. Her son, Kevin Barry, was born on the 9th of November, 1920. No father was named on the birth certificate. As a single mother, she lost her job and moved into number 2 Catherine Street at the Coombe. At the time, she was going by the name Lizzie O'Neill. Margaret McGill was a widow with no children who had a room below Lizzie in the basement of the building. Margaret lived with her partner, James, and his son. She helped to look after Kevin and eventually became a foster mother to the infant. In 1922, when Honor moved to Newmarket, Kevin stayed with Mrs. McGill in Catherine Street. It's also likely that at this time, Honor lived in a number of houses run by charitable organisations like the Legion of Mary that sought to rehabilitate these unfortunate women and though Honor seemed willing to take what she could, she didn't seem particularly keen to give up her career. She was well known among the women who walked the streets and those charity workers. When Honor was shot and died, Margaret and James raised Kevin as their own. Once the initial investigation of the scene was completed, late that day, on the 9th of June by the Civic Guard, Honor Bright's remains were removed to the nearby Boyle's public house. There, the post-mortem examination and inquest would take place, as was standard at the time. That evening, another woman who lived at 48 Newmarket attended to identify the body, Madge Hopkins. She had been with Honor Bright the night before. The two had left the house at 11 together and headed into the city centre. Madge gave police the details of what she and Honor had done and where they'd been in the hours before Honor's killing early that morning. Madge told them that she, Honor and a few other girls had left their lodgings at Newmarket. The implication was that they were headed out to work. After some time, the girls all split up and Madge didn't see Honor again until meeting up with her at some point between 1 and 2 a.m. near the Shelburne Hotel. There, they sat on the cast iron chain railings at the park for a while until a grey two-seater car pulled up at the hotel with a man behind the wheel. He called the women over. Madge said that this man made what was described as a certain suggestion to her before heading into the hotel. The two women remained outside talking to two taxi drivers who had pulled in in front of the hotel, waiting for fares. When the man returned, he had a friend with him. They stood talking to the women for a bit, and then Madge went off with the first man, walking around the green towards Hume Street. Madge said that she'd left Honor with the other man. She'd sat into the car with him, and the two were talking. They went for a spin around the green while Madge was off with the other fellow. The last time Madge saw her friend was after she'd returned from Hume Street. She, Honor and the two men had stayed chatting for a bit, sometimes with the two cab drivers who were there. But then Honor had gotten into a cab and had been driven off. Madge hadn't seen her again after that. With an identification and an idea of the shooting victim's last movements, the investigation by the Civic Guard continued. The body of Honor Bright was examined in the pub by two doctors. Dr. James Neary observed a slight hemorrhage from the mouth, which he explained was a result of damage to her lung. He also found a bullet wound on the right side of Honor's chest and no corresponding exit wound. 
The bullet was found lodged just beneath Honor Bright's left shoulder blade and removed. The civic guard preserved it as evidence. There were no further injury on Miss Bright's body, indicating that she had not been involved in a struggle or a fight, and as she was fully clothed, no sexual assault was determined to have taken place. The next step taken by the guards was to try and identify the men that Madge and Honor had been with outside the Shelburne the night before. Investigations began into who had drawn up their cabs at the hotel, but it would turn out to be a much easier thing to identify the other two men who had been there that night. Leopold Dillon, a 25-year-old superintendent in charge of Dunlavin Police Station, presented himself to the guards who were in charge of the case. He made a statement admitting that he and a friend of his, 30-year-old Patrick Purcell, a doctor living in Blessington County Wicklow, had spoken with and spent time with the two women outside the Shelburne in the early hours of the 9th of June. When Dr. Purcell, who was also a peace commissioner in the area, was approached by members of the Civic Guard, he confirmed that he and Superintendent Dillon had been in Dublin together that evening and they'd interacted with Honor and another woman who had told them her name was Bridie before they made the drive back home. On Monday the 6th of July 1925, Purcell and Dillon were charged with the murder of Honor Bright or Lily O'Neill and appeared before the district court where evidence of arrest was given. In response to the charge, Purcell said, quote, I am absolutely innocent, and Dillon said, quote, I wish to state that I am not guilty. Both were remanded in custody until the 14th of July. On the same day as that first appearance before the court, Leo Dillon was dismissed from his position as superintendent at Dunlavin by the Executive Council. Shortly after, depositions in advance of the trial of the two men occurred where witnesses were called before the court to give sworn testimony of their evidence, something that is no longer routinely done in criminal cases in Ireland. Those depositions began on the 18th of July. During the depositions, more information about what Superintendent Dillon and Dr. Purcell had done during the day on the 8th of June was revealed. A guard who was stationed alongside Dillon at Blessington, named Doherty, described his interactions with the two men on the afternoon of the 8th of June. Guard Doherty said that Superintendent Dillon and Dr. Purcell had come by the barracks. Dr. Purcell was looking for a raincoat, and so Doherty let the doctor borrow his overcoat. Doherty said he was then asked for another coat, so he went to find another. Then two hats were got. Doherty said that Dillon and Purcell put on the borrowed clothes and drove off. Mr. Patrick Ahern deposed that he was staying at Nosnery Hotel in Nace, County Kildare. He said he couldn't be sure of the exact day, but during the week of the 13th of June, Leo Dillon and Pat Purcell, both of whom were known to him for at least a year, had stopped by. Dillon had asked for the loan of a coat as he was going to Dublin. Ahern got him a coat, collar and tie, and Dillon had left his uniform coat and collar in Ahern's bedroom. After that, the two men left the hotel and went off in the car. Sergeant Andrew Dorden told the court in his deposition that he took photos of the scene at Ticknock Cross on the 9th of June. Those pictures were submitted to the court. 
a recounting of what had gone on outside the Shelburne Hotel in the early hours of the 9th of June 1925 was given by Madge, though as she described how Purcell had arrived at the hotel that night, accusations of interfering with a witness flew in the courtroom. It was suggested by defence counsel that a police inspector had been making suggestions to Madge while she gave her evidence, something that was strongly denied by both the inspector and the prosecuting counsel, who said the defence attorney was basically grandstanding for the press. In response to that charge, the defence barrister exclaimed, Nonsense! Flapdoodle! Madge continued, recalling that she and Honor had stood outside the Shelburne speaking to two cab drivers, and then Dr. Purcell came out of the hotel with another man. They got into the grey car and drove a few yards to the corner at Marion Row. The second man, Mr. Dillon, got out of the car and the two women approached him. The four were standing there together for about five minutes before Madge and Dr. Purcell left and headed towards nearby Hume Street. There was a conversation about change where Dr. Purcell said he'd only a pound note on him. Madge didn't have the change of it and she suggested that they go back to the cabbies and ask them to make the change. When they got back to the hotel, Honor and Mr. Dillon were driving around the green in the car. Madge and Purcell headed to the men standing outside the hotel, but the cab drivers didn't have change either, so one of them, James McCabe, headed to the porter of the hotel to ask him. But again, there was no change to be had, and so the pound note was returned to Dr. Purcell. At that point, Dr. Purcell Speaking to both Madge and the cab drivers had said he'd been quote-unquote let down by another girl earlier in the night and said that he'd been robbed of £11 and his silver cigarette case earlier that night too. Madge asked if he'd know this girl to see again and Dr. Purcell said that he would. She'd had light-coloured bobbed hair and was wearing a grey coat and was good-looking. The doctor went on to say that he'd do her in if he saw her again. When Madge exclaimed, oh, don't do that, Purcell responded that he'd make someone suffer. On the stand, Madge said that Purcell went on angrily saying that the girl would have taken his last pound if she could have, only he'd kept it in his pocket with his revolver. At that point, Madge said Purcell lifted his coat and flashed a gun. Purcell said he never went anywhere without a gun. He went on to brag about knowing the head of the Civic Guard and said he had the power to blow all the girls off the green. After that, Purcell told Madge he wanted to go back to Hume Street, and she agreed. Honor saw them going. She was sitting in the car with Mr. Dillon across from the hotel, and she called after Madge, asking if they'd be long, but Madge said she'd only be a few minutes. Madge said she and Purcell were gone for only four or five minutes. While she was with Mr. Purcell around the corner, Madge told the court that she thought she could feel the revolver in Purcell's pocket. When Madge returned to the green, Dylan and Honor were gone. They'd headed off in Purcell's car. Madge got into a cab with James McCabe. Another driver, Mr. Murta, was speaking with Purcell, and then, when that conversation was finished, she and Murta drove away in McCabe's cab. After that, she didn't see them again. The cab drivers present that night outside the Shelburne were also deposed before the district court, 
Christopher Murta was one of them, and he confirmed that he was there when Madge, Honor, Dylan and Purcell were hanging around outside the Shelburne. He also confirmed the men's movements and the change incident, just as Madge had told it. Mr. Murta also recalled what he could of Dr. Purcell and his story of being robbed by another girl earlier in the evening. He too said that Purcell had threatened this other woman and said he'd put a gun in her mouth, indicating that he had a gun on his person by touching his pocket. According to Murta, Purcell said he'd take the woman who'd stolen from him out to the country where no one would find her, and went on to say that if he couldn't get her, some other girl would fall victim. Murta had also heard the statement made by Dr. Purcell about clearing the green of girls, and added that Purcell had also made a statement along the lines of having a civic guard's coat on him at present. Murta saw Bridie, or Madge, and he also saw the two men drive off. Then he saw Honor leave in a cab whose driver he didn't know. James McCabe, another cab driver, was deposed on the same day. He told the court that he had arrived on the green at about half two and had seen the two men, the cab driver Murta, and the two girls. McCabe recalled the conversations about getting Purcell change, the theft and the threats from Purcell about getting even with the woman who'd stole from him. Further depositions were heard at the district court a week later on the 25th of July, 1925. Taximan Ernest Woodruff of Dunleary described how he had driven to the Shelburne in the early hours of the 9th of June. He'd started work that night at around 9pm and had been driving a taxi for about five years. He knew the city well. When he got to the hotel, he had parked up at Marion Row at about three or half three. When he arrived, he saw a grey two-seater car with two men in it. There were also two girls in the area. The girls had been standing on either side of the car, talking to the men inside. The four of them remained in the area for a while. While he sat in the car, one of the girls came over to him, one he recognised as being named O'Neill, but who he knew also went by Honour Bright. But she quickly went back to the other car where her friend and the two men had stayed. After a few minutes, Honour came back to him, and he asked her what was wrong, as her demeanour made him think she was upset or flustered. She didn't answer, so he didn't know if she'd heard him or not. There was some sort of conversation at his taxi between Honor, the other woman, and the two men, and then Honor got into the back of his car. One of the men told Honor that he'd see her later, and Ms. O'Neill, Honor Bright, said, All right. Then he drove Honor Bright through South Dublin City down Bagot Street and to the Adelaide Road and then onto Harrington Street and up as far as Clanbrazel Street at Leonard's Corner. They had stopped briefly under the railway bridge at Harcourt Road. Woodruff denied that anything had happened between the two at that point. He took his fare from her at Leonard's Corner and then headed back into the centre of town. Woodruff deposed that when he was headed back into town along Camden Street, he saw a car coming towards him that looked like the grey two-seater that the men had been in, with two men inside it. This car was also headed in the direction of Leonard's Corner. Woodruff had also identified one of the men he'd seen that night at the Bridewell Police Station the morning the deposition occurred on the 25th of July. Woodruff had not been asked to do so until that point. He'd identified Dr. Purcell. 
Woodruff told the court that he was interviewed for the first time on Saturday after Honor Bright's body was found. He'd been located by a guard outside Kennedy's pub in Dunleary and was brought to the local station where he made a statement. Woodruff was kept there overnight and then the following morning he was brought to the Bridewell and detained there until Wednesday. The cab driver told the court he had made no statement until Wednesday. He said that he was not interviewed in the intervening days at all, but then clarified that he had been questioned. The officers who questioned him wrote nothing down, however. They told him he was being detained on suspicion of involvement in Honor Bright's death, but also said that he was not charged with anything. During that questioning, he'd told the civic guard that on the Tuesday, when Honor Bright's body had been found, Woodruff had not brought his taxi out. The following day, Wednesday, he'd got a job down to Bray. On Thursday, he'd bought some petrol and then left the car on the street outside the garage so that if anyone wanted to hire him, they could. But Woodruff said that he got no jobs between then and when the Civic Guard asked him to the barracks. Another member of the Civic Guard was also deposed that day, Guard Burke. Guard Burke told the court that while out walking his beat on the night of the 8th of June into the morning of the 9th, he came to the corner of the Rathgar Road and saw a grey two-seater car on the Harold's Cross Road with three persons standing nearby, two men and a woman. The woman was speaking loudly, which was what drew his attention. When Guard Burke crossed over the road and began towards them, the three got into the car and drove off, south, in the direction of Terranur. Burke also described how he had gone to a witness identification parade two weeks before the hearing. There were 11 or 12 men there, one of whom he pointed out as most like a man he'd seen on the road, the man who had been driving. Burke had picked out Mr. Dillon. Further evidence was also heard regarding the movements of Dillon and Purcell that night. Guard O'Sullivan said he heard a car arrive outside the Blessington barracks in the early hours of the 9th of June. He also heard Dr. Purcell drive off in the two-seater. O'Sullivan's estimation was that there was maybe half an hour between the two events, and he recalled that the clock struck five as he was going back to sleep. Guard McCaffrey told the court during his deposition that on the morning of the 9th of June he was in the barracks at Blessington and he was woken by a knock at the outer door. It was Dylan and Purcell. McCaffrey got them both a glass of water each and was then asked to get a motorbike from the shed out at the back of the barracks, which he did. When he returned, Dr. Purcell was gone and his overcoat had been thrown over a seat in the day room area. McCaffrey said the coat was stained, but he didn't know with what. There were briars and leaves on it too. Another detective inspector was shown this coat in court and confirmed that the place that Honor Bright had been found had similar briars. Then, the deposition hearings were adjourned once more. The two men appeared again before the Dublin District Court on the 29th of September 1925, with papers reporting crowds of the public there to witness the proceedings. The Leinster leader noted in particular that onlookers were women of a superior class and residents of the areas that the two men were from. Superintendent Reynolds, who had headed the investigation into Honor Bright's death, 
told the court that he had interviewed Dr. Purcell in his home on June 13th. Purcell had answered questions and had been told he was not under arrest. Along with making this statement, Purcell handed over a gun. The statement was not read to court, however, on agreement from all councils. Chief Superintendent Leahy deposed that Dillon had made a statement to him. Again, it was agreed by both parties not to read that statement before the court. Chief Superintendent Nelligan interviewed both men again on the 16th of June voluntarily, and again they made statements answering a number of questions. The district court was told that these statements would all be relied upon at trial at a later date. Captain Stapleton, the chief ordnance inspector at the time, showed a pistol to the court. It had been handed over to the civic guard by Dr. Purcell when he had given them his written statement. The gun was a 32 Browning automatic. Stapleton had also examined a 9mm bullet which had been removed from Honor Bright's body and he determined that this bullet could not have been fired from the smaller gun that he had shown the court. Once again, both men told the judge that they were innocent of the crime they stood accused of and then they were returned for trial before the criminal court at the High Court Circuit for Dublin. An interesting matter arose at this deposition hearing which was pointed out by Mr O'Connor, one of the barristers acting for Dr Purcell. The date for the next sitting of that court had not been fixed. In fact, that court had yet to sit at all as its judges were awaiting new rules of the court to be produced. In 1925, two years after the end of the Civil War, the Irish Free State was still establishing its institutions. O'Connor asked, therefore, for his client to be admitted to bail on the production of sureties, but the judge denied this as bail was unheard of in murder charges. Mr O'Connor was told to take the issue up with the High Court. Mr Gagan, acting for Leo Dillon, asked for the charges to be dismissed against his client due to lack of evidence, and this was also refused. On August 10, 1925, this bail issue was raised again. Purcell's lawyers argued before the court that he should be granted bail. The court that he was due to appear before was not yet constituted, and might never be constituted, meaning that Purcell, who vehemently protested his innocence, might be kept in prison indefinitely. The court was told that Purcell was willing to get together any amount that might be required to ensure bail, and his lawyers assured the court that if and when Purcell would be given a date, he would be present there for the trial. Mr Justice Hanna considered the argument and consulted the relevant authorities and precedents overnight. The next day, he delivered his judgment. Hanna noted that it was unlikely in the ordinary course of things, under the previous court arrangements, that Purcell would have appeared for trial before the winter assizes, and so if the rules that had by that stage already been drawn up were to come before Parliament in November, as was expected, a trial date in December did not seem like an unreasonable period of time for Purcell to be waiting. Because the delay due to the court situation was unlikely to be much longer, if at all, from what he would have experienced had the old system still been in place, it was decided that, given the serious charge, bail would not be appropriate. The application could be renewed if the date had not been decided beyond December, or if it was set for much longer off. 
Mr Justice Hanna refused bail in the High Court in Dublin on Tuesday the 11th of August 1925 and, in the end, the trial was given a date to be heard in the Criminal Court in Dublin. The trial opened in the Central Criminal Court sitting in Green Street Courthouse on Monday the 1st of February 1926 before Mr Justice Sullivan, a jury of 12 men and crowds of onlookers. Both Patrick Purcell and Leo Dillon pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder. The prosecution's case was that the two men had gone to Dublin together with the intentions of spending the night in debauchery. After meeting her at the Shelburne, they chanced across Honor Bright again, standing in the road alone. The men grabbed her and took off. Then they shot and killed her at Ticknock in the Dublin Mountains. Mr. Carrigan, King's Counsel and Senior Counsel for the Free State, said that Honor Bright had died quickly and there was very little blood on the scene. He described for the court how she had a calm countenance on her face, as if she had not realised what was about to happen to her. Carrigan said that the theory of this crime was that the two men were headed home via the Nace Road and had seen Honor standing on the side of the road, where she'd been dropped by a cab. They convinced her into the car again. Some sort of attack followed at Ticknock. It looked as if she had tried to take her shoe off in order to batter someone just before she was shot, as she was found with the shoe lying beside her. Carrigan said, quote, It was the only chance of a defenceless and miserable woman when she saw herself in danger. End quote. Further, Dylan had written a complete account of events that night, stopping just short of the murder and the prosecution argued that all of this would be supported by the witnesses to be called. Mr Carrigan, King's counsel, said the facts of the case that he would have to go through were utterly revolting, and that for the most part, Dillon accepted them as true. Carrigan pointed out that Dillon, being a chief officer in the police, had written his version of events as soon as he realised that suspicion fell on him, and gave an accounting of his movements for the full day before the discovery of Honor Bright's body. Dr. Purcell had given a story very similar to that of Dylan, which was described in the press as a quote-unquote horrible orgy. Meanwhile, both men acknowledged that they had been up to no good that night, but denied that they had shot and killed Honor Bright. Maps of the area where Honor was found was shown to the jury. Evidence was heard about the discovery of her body, and the results of the post-mortem were gone through. Madge Hopkins, who had gone by Bridie the night before Honor's death, told her story of what had happened. She told the court that she'd known Honor for about five years, and they'd lodged together at Newmarket. The court heard the testimony of guard Byrne, who told the court of having seen a young woman at Harold's Cross Road speaking to two men who were standing next to a grey two-seater car. Then all three had gotten in and driven off. Guard Byrne had said that Mr. Dillon looked like one of the men he had seen. Evidence was heard about Dillon and Purcell's arrival back to Blessington, where they and the car had been noted by other officers in the barracks, sometime between 4 and 5 a.m. Captain Stapleton, the chief ordnance officer, described the gun handed over by Purcell the 32 Browning, and the 9mm bullet retrieved from Honor's body. 
Captain Edward Hornridge also appeared before the court to give evidence relating to Dr. Purcell and his use of guns. The captain said that he'd often practiced with revolvers with Dr. Purcell in the autumn of 1924, and Purcell had once arrived at his house with two 32 Browning revolvers, though the second didn't work. Another member of the Civic Guard described how Purcell had come to him, asking to have an application to keep a firearm, and showed him two revolvers. The taxi drivers Christopher Murta and James McCabe gave their evidence, recalling seeing both the two women and the two men outside the hotel that night. A lady named Mrs. Trainer of Ashford also gave evidence, this time in relation to another witness in the case, taxi driver Mr. Ernest Woodruff. She deposed to seeing Mr. Woodruff with a revolver the summer before and said she'd reported the matter to the Civic Guard. Then came Ernest Woodruff himself, who was questioned far more closely. He was the man who drove the taxi Honor had gone off in, and he once again told the court that after dropping Honor at Leonard's Corner, a good twenty minutes' walk from her home at Newmarket, he saw the grey vehicle pass by him going back in the direction towards Honor. When Woodruff was cross-examined by Mr. O'Connor for Purcell, he told the court that he'd known Honor for some months and quote-unquote knew her character. She'd known him by the name of Jimmy. Woodruff knew where she lived, but when he picked her up that night, she had told him the directions to take. Woodruff said Honor told him she hadn't wanted to go home, and he insisted under cross-examination that he didn't take the obvious route over to the Liberties because Honor had given him the directions. While on the stand, Woodruff told the court that he'd only driven Honor once or twice, but that he'd often spoken to her when he had no car with him. On the night of the 9th of June, he saw her near the green between 10pm and 11pm, and then he met her again and had given her the lift. That evening, Woodruff had come into town at around half eight and went to the theatre. After that, he went driving looking for fares. On the stand, he vehemently denied that he was in fact out looking for girls, saying he was up around the pillar at Sackville Street for a while, but he got no fares. Woodruff denied that he'd been in the British Army or that he had a revolver. He admitted that he knew a woman by the name of Trainer who lived in Ashford, but went on to deny having shown this woman a revolver. However, Woodruff admitted that he had owned a gun once, two years before. He'd bought it off a man named Doyle for two pounds, but had given it back the next day because he'd gotten scared. He insisted that he'd never really handled a gun and didn't know how to shoot one. Ernest Woodruff said that he was reasonably well off. He owned a bicycle shop in Dunleary, and he had private means. He was not sustained, as it were, by the takings made while driving a taxi. Woodruff admitted he was not averse to giving lifts for free to a lady. Woodruff testified that he hadn't heard of Honor's death until a few days after the event, but even then he hadn't known it was her, as he said she wasn't named in the papers. As his evidence came to a close, Woodruff denied having murdered Honor Bright. All he'd done, he said, was to drive her to Leonard's Corner, and he never saw her again after that. He said he'd told everything to the police in his statements, and they had taken no action against him. 
After Woodruff's evidence was completed, the court took a break. But in the meantime, a guard had approached Mr. O'Connor for Dr. Purcell with information. After this, Woodruff was immediately recalled to the stand. He was asked if it was true, as he had earlier stated, that he had not used his car again after the night Honor was killed. He confirmed that this was true and said that it was what he had said in his statement. Then Mr. O'Connor asked a Mr. Richard Doody, who was in court, to stand and asked Woodruff if it was not true that on Thursday morning, the 11th of June, between 3 and 4 a.m., he had been driving along Nassau Street with a woman named Nora Manning and a man who were in the back of the cab. Was it not true that Nora was screaming and the cab had been stopped by police on Westland Row because of the commotion? Richard Doody, a member of the Civic Guard, had stopped him there and brought them all to the Bridewell. Woodruff conceded that this was true, but said that Nora Manning had not been screaming. When asked how it was that the policeman had noticed the cab then, Woodruff said it was because he had a light out nothing more. Evidence of the arrests of Purcell and Dillon on the 4th of July was given to the court by Chief Superintendent Nelligan. It was at this point that the contents of the statements given by Purcell and Dillon voluntarily in the days after Honor's killing was finally heard. According to Leo Dillon, on the morning of the 8th of June, Dillon had to attend court in Blessington in relation to a man charged with larceny. Dylan arrived at the court at 11.45, but the man in question did not. A warrant was requested. Dr. Purcell arrived to court in his capacity as peace commissioner, just as Dylan was leaving. After that, the two men attended an auction. The man accused of larceny turned up that afternoon and was committed to prison by Dr. Purcell. Dylan thought that there was a car down from Dublin and said that it would be a good time for him to go up and consult with the detective division there regarding a case he had where a man had issued a false check. But then Dr. Purcell had offered him a lift as he planned on heading into Dublin too. They left Blessington at about half four or five and Dylan said he'd borrowed clothes because the weather was warm and his uniform was stifling. After stopping in Nace, they got to Dublin at half six, and Dylan and Purcell went to the Bailey restaurant for dinner, where they stayed for about an hour. Then Dylan went to see friends in Sandymount. Purcell drove him as far as Black Rock, and the two made arrangements to meet later at the Shelburne Hotel. After finishing up with his friends and making his way back into town, Dylan got to the hotel at half eight. Purcell had not yet arrived, so he left and returned to the hotel at 5 to 10. Purcell still wasn't there. Dylan left again and found Dr. Purcell speaking with another man in Grafton Street, so Dylan went back to the Shelburne and fell asleep in the lounge. At half past 12, Purcell finally showed up. As they left the hotel, they met the two girls. Dylan said he didn't know them, but he got the impression that Purcell did. Purcell went off with one and he stayed with the other, driving her around the green. Then Purcell came back with the other girl and they stood talking to some cab drivers. Then another cab pulled up and the girl Dylan was with said that if she knew the new driver, she'd ask for a lift home because Dylan had said he couldn't drive her home as the car wasn't his. She got into the cab and went off. 
Then Purcell got back into the car with Dylan and they drove off too, back to Blessington. They didn't stop on their journey there and they arrived back at around 4am with the journey taking about 45 minutes. Purcell's statement basically agreed with Dylan's. The auction, meeting Dylan, heading to Dublin and eating at the Bailey, though the times were a bit off. After he dropped Dylan at Black Rock, he'd met up with a girlfriend and her friend, and he and the two women had gone for a drive around Donnybrook. He spent about two hours with them. After that, he met a friend, Mr. Colgan in Grafton Street, and spoke with him for a while. When he was finished there, Purcell said that he dropped a quote-unquote lady friend, whose name he didn't know, out to Drumcondra. Then he headed to the Shelburne. On his way into the hotel to meet Dylan, he spoke with the two girls. When he and Dylan left the hotel, they'd intended on going home, but they were stopped again by the same two girls. The rest of the night corresponded with what had been said by other witnesses. He'd gone to Hume Street with one of the women, he'd spoke with the cab drivers and asked to make change, and then he and Dylan had driven home. In addition, Dr. Purcell told police that he had a revolver and a permit for it. The only few rounds that he'd had for the gun had been used up the day before Honor's death when Purcell had shot at a crow or jackdaw. Along with the statement he'd given Superintendent Reynolds an automatic revolver and an empty cartridge case. Then the court heard evidence from a Mr. Dennis Keegan, who had been tasked with ascertaining how long the journey from Dublin to Blessington would take. He drove the grey two-seater from the Shelburne to Dr. Purcell's house and told the court that the trip had taken one hour in that car. Then Kathleen Purcell, Dr. Purcell's wife, was called to the stand. She told the court that her husband was not in the habit of staying out late. He'd done it only maybe twice before. On the morning in question, she'd heard a car arrive at the front door of the house at about 4.25am. Then she heard the study window open and a few minutes later, her husband came into the bedroom and began to get ready for bed. At that stage, it was around 4.40. She'd remarked to him at the time that it was a nice hour of the morning for him to be coming in. Dr. Purcell had some drink taken. She was sure of the times as she kept the lamp on in her bedroom because they had two small children. When questioned further, Mrs. Purcell told the court that on the evening of the 8th of June, she'd noticed a gun in a drawer as she was sending the laundry out. She also said she'd given her husband 25 or 30 shillings that day as well. Leopold Dillon took the stand next and said he knew nothing about the death of the young woman that night. He'd gone up to Dublin intending to see the detective division, but hadn't done so as he was delayed in Nace. He and Purcell had stopped in Nace because Purcell had to drop by another doctor's and get instructions regarding a number of maternity cases he'd be looking after while that doctor from Nace was away on holiday. Dylan said he'd never been out in Dublin with Purcell before. He said he had left the Shelburne Hotel at about half twelve with Purcell and described their conversations with the two women, driving around the green with Honor and then heading home. He admitted having given Honor whatever change he had on him that night, amounting to about six and a half shillings. Dylan said he'd seen a grey-haired man in the back of the taxi when Honor was driven off in it. He said they got back to Blessington at around 4am. 
he denied knowing anything about the woman's murder and said he never saw her after she got into the taxi and that he was not at Harold's Cross Road at any point that night. He insisted that he had had no quarrel with Honor, that he'd no gun on him that night, and that although he'd had several beers and some small whiskies, he thought himself quite sober at that point of the night. When Dylan was cross-examined by the prosecution counsel, Mr. Carrigan, he told the court that he had been in the British Army from 1917 to 1919. After that, he became a medical student at Cork University, but said he didn't get his qualifications. Then he joined the Civic Guard. He said the first he realised that the murdered girl might be something he needed to concern himself with was when he spoke to Superintendent Leahy Ash Donard, and once he did, he had immediately given an accounting of his movements. Dylan said he didn't even own a gun. He'd used a gun only a few times in the course of his duties and had had to borrow the firearms at those times. He told Carrigan that he would not describe the evening as one of pleasure, as he was left waiting by Purcell for four hours at the Shelburne. Dr. Purcell gave his evidence after Dylan and appeared notably calm on the stand, despite a very thorough cross-examination. He admitted that he'd spent about 20 shillings on drink that night and had had more than 12 drinks. Purcell told the court that he and Dylan had never gone to Dublin together before. He had no idea why Dylan wanted to go, but he was headed out for a meal and the theatre. He had intended on heading out alone. Purcell explained to the court that he'd borrowed clothes because he'd had a few drinks taken by the time they left Blessington and he knew that if he'd gone home to change, he'd have been kept on there instead of going out. Purcell agreed with the accounts that he'd been trying to get the change of a pound note and that he'd told a drunken tale about a robbery, which wasn't true. But he denied outright that he had made any threats against anyone, nor did he have a gun in his possession at the time. He said that perhaps what Madge, known to him as Bridie, had felt in his pocket was his stethoscope, which he told the court he always had on his person. Purcell went on to demonstrate this for the jury by pulling a stethoscope from his pocket while on the stand. Purcell also denied that Bridie had gone with him around to Hume Street a second time because she'd felt threatened by him. He had two guns, Dr. Purcell said. They were both the same and the clips were interchangeable, but he discovered one of them no longer worked and he'd thrown it in the river near to his home. After all the witnesses and depositions were heard by the judge and jury, Mr. O'Connor, acting for Dr. Purcell, began a rather lengthy closing argument. O'Connor said that he had never known an accused to make such free and full statements as the two men before the court now. They'd told the full truth where many would not have, given what they'd been up to. O'Connor asked, why would they admit to anything like that if they'd been involved with the murder? Why admit to anything at all if they were guilty? Their full accounts had been honest and frank, and they'd been thrown back at them by the prosecution as an indication that they were so morally degenerate that they must therefore be guilty of this murder too. But that was not the case. Inconsistencies in times and so on were to be expected, but the movements of the men up until they left the Shelburne at half-twelve were not at all disputed. 
The theft story, which Purcell admitted to making up, meant nothing, and lying while drunk certainly wasn't a criminal offence. And O'Connor went further, saying that the men simply didn't have the time to kill Honor. They definitely arrived in Blessington by half four, and it took at least an hour to make that drive. But Honor was seen getting into Woodruff's taxi, maybe five minutes after the gaslights were put out on Stephen's Green, with the sun rising. That night, the lamps had been put out at 3.45. There simply wasn't enough time for them to have gotten back to Blessington if they'd followed after Honor and met her somewhere near to Leonard's Corner or the Harold's Cross Road, both locations which were further away from her home in Newmarket. Mr. O'Connor suggested that perhaps Honor had been the victim of one of the many quasi-political criminal secret societies that had overtaken Dublin in recent years due to political unrest and the Civil War. Or, more likely, the Civic Guard should have focused more on Ernest Woodruff. He was by far the more likely suspect, a man who didn't mind when his fare wasn't paid, who, quote, prowled around the city, who hovered around like a giant spider seeking flies, who had a wide acquaintance with the girls in the city, end quote. Woodruff needed to somehow get the attention off him because he had been arrested and this was a murder charge with hanging on the table. O'Connor went on to point out that he'd only identified Purcell after the doctor had appeared in public in court twice. Further, he said Woodruff had lied about seeing Purcell that night. It wasn't possible given the timings. He was a man not to be trusted. Mr. O'Connor said in his closing, quote, I ask you, gentlemen, with the greatest confidence, to return a verdict of not guilty against my client so that with the help of that verdict and the aid of a forgiving wife, he will pick up again those threads of happiness he so nearly wrecked through his own folly and win back again and in due course find himself in the position he was when he left Blessington on the evening of the 8th of June, 1925. End quote. Mr. Sheehy, on behalf of Mr. Dillon, then also urged the jury to give careful consideration to the evidence put forward by Woodruff and the story that he was trying to tell. He drew their attention in particular to the fact that the fatal bullet didn't fit the gun that Purcell owned and had handed over to the Civic Guard. Mr. Carrigan gave the closing speech for the state. He said it was a simply preposterous idea that Honor Bright had been assassinated by a secret society. Furthermore, Ernest Woodruff had been detained and questioned and made statements just like the defendants had, but he hadn't found himself in the dock after the investigation. The Civic Guard did not believe that there was evidence there of the taxi man's guilt. He had not been seen in the Ticknock area and his movements had been fully investigated by the police. But, Carrigan said, Dylan and Purcell hadn't left Blessington that night with the intention of committing murder, just having a good time. They'd spent an hour and a half hanging around with the girls outside the Shelburne, but they'd now have the jury believe that they'd been anxious to get home. And with regards to the times given by various witnesses, Carrigan said all of that was approximate. There was no way for the witnesses to fix anything with certainty. The weapon used to kill Honor Bright had not been found. There was simply nothing to match this bullet to, and the pistol handed in by Purcell, he said, was irrelevant. These two men had been seen in the company of Honor Bright that night. A car matching theirs had been seen by a member of the Civic Guard at Harold's Cross Road, with a woman present. 
and then Honor Bright had been found dead in the foothills of the Dublin Mountains, across which lived these same two men. Dylan and Purcell were guilty of this murder, he said. It was quarter to seven when Mr. Justice Sullivan began his address. He told the twelve men that this was a straightforward question for them to answer, whether or not Dylan and Purcell were guilty of murder. Sullivan said that this was not an issue of morals. They were not there to pass judgment on the activities that these men may have engaged in that night before coming across Honor and her companion. In addition, Honor Bright's life was, in the eyes of the law, as valuable as any other. They were to find their verdict regardless of the effect that it might have on the accused's circumstances, nor should their verdict be influenced by Honor's position relative to the defendant's. The judge also pointedly said that the jury were not there to decide if Ernest Woodruff had anything to do with Honor's death. Honor had gone off in a cab with Woodruff, and so the question was, had the accused come across her elsewhere and then committed the crime? It was quarter to nine when those instructions were finished, and the jury retired. After a quick three minutes, they returned. Everyone in the court was surprised. Not guilty was the result. Both men were immediately discharged. There was shouting and cheering outside the court from the crowds who had remained to hear the final result, and the two men drove off in cars with friends. In February of 1926, the Minister of Local Government sent word to the Wicklow Board of Health, removing Dr. Purcell from his position, and they replaced him with his sister who would carry out his duties as medical officer for the Blessington District. In the end, Patrick Purcell and his wife could no longer live in Blessington because of the notoriety that came from the case. The Purcells moved to Kent in England. Leo Dillon also found resuming his life after the trial difficult. He moved to Wales, where he had been born and where his family was, and shortly after that he moved on to Canada, where he married and lived a quiet life. In 1942, Honor Bright's son, Kevin, enlisted with the British Army and needed a birth cert to prove his age. It was then that he found out that Margaret McGill and James weren't his real parents. On the certificate, his mother was listed as Lizzie O'Neill and no father was named. Kevin moved to the UK and died in 1980, aged 59, having always intended on trying to find out more about his family in Ireland, but he never did. Of course, in 1925, it was widely known within Dublin, and not mentioned at all during the trial or in the coverage of that proceeding, that Honor Bright had had a child. Indeed, there were rumours that Honor had been about to reveal who the father of that child was, and that was why she'd been killed. One of the theories that emerged in recent years that taps into that speculation is put forward by author Patricia Hughes. Patricia is Kevin Barry's daughter and discovered what had occurred to her grandmother. But after noticing a similarity between pictures of her father and pictures of a young W.B. Yeats, she embarked on a journey of trying to prove that her grandmother, Honor Bright or Lily O'Neill, had in fact had a long-standing affair with the poet and statesman. Her theory was that, having had Yeats's child, Honor posed a threat to the newly established Free State Government and the marriage of Yeats and his wife George. Because of this, Hughes argues, 
Honor Bright was depicted as a prostitute and was killed. The striking thing about the book where Patricia lays out her theories is the disdain shown to the women who worked the streets in Dublin. Ms. Hughes says that her father was clever and kind and therefore could not have had a prostitute as a mother. She went on to dismiss stories told about Honor by women who lived alongside her, saying that many sex workers had learning disabilities and had simply imagined working alongside Honor Bright. The twisting of testimony and fact, the assumptions made, and the conclusions jumped to by a reading of Yeats' poetry is striking. Many of the facts of what was or was not presented at trial appear to be an error based on the reporting record from the time. There are also so many assumptions made. For example, Hughes outlined how her father remembered being cleaned up and visiting a big house with his foster mother Margaret McGill. And then the author proposed that this incident must have been a visit to the house of the Minister for Justice, who threatened McGill to keep Kevin's parentage a secret. She also repeatedly says that Honor couldn't possibly have scrounged one pound a week to pay McGill to look after her child, and she was too well-dressed to be selling herself. The whole thing, according to Hughes, is a giant conspiracy. At an emotional level, it is totally understandable trying to figure out who your family is and where you come from, and maybe wanting your past, your family history, to be something momentous and impactful. But I think Honor's life and her unfortunate death, as they were, are important. It's perhaps a more modern way of looking at things, but everyday lives and their struggles have value simply because of their ordinariness. It gives us all a better insight into the human condition. And, unfortunately, like so often happens, Honor Bright never got justice. Her murder went unsolved after Purcell and Dylan were released. Her name lived on, though, and she became a sort of mythic figure, a wild and unrulable woman who emerged in the midst of the establishment of the new Irish Free State, with two attributes that were certainly not to be encouraged. And so, even after her death, Honor Bright stood out from the crowd. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from the generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to James Matten, Missy, Tom Doyle, Kimberly Ross, Kate Hurst, Connor Bowen, Karen Williams, Catherine, Jackie Graham Espino, Sarah Duffy, and Shane McGinnell, who has upped their pledge. There are bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes and mens rea goodies on offer. So please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mens Also, did you know you can get mens rea merch? Head to bit.ly forward slash shop to see the logo slapped on t-shirts, hoodies, and mugs. The link is in the show notes, and don't forget to show off your swag on social media and tag the show. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Head over to noom.com forward slash mens to start your free trial with Noom today and get working on your goals for healthier you. And kill some time in quarantine with my favorite mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. Say it with me, guys. That's friends without the R. Remember, 
Supporting our sponsors supports this show, so do check them out. Just a quick apology regarding the late release for this episode. We're really lucky in this household that COVID-19 hasn't had a huge impact on us, but everyone is at home now, and time management, especially quiet time, is a thing we haven't and probably never will master. So bear with me while I get everything done, but don't worry. There won't be any major interruptions to the podcast. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Amelia, quiet. Go downstairs, please. That's not relevant. Take that out.